I want to welcome you into the Sunday Preaching Podcast of the Point Church, located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. I want you to grab your Bible. You do that and go with me to 1 Kings chapter 12. We're in the same text we were in last week, and I want you to go there with me, and we're going to uh, pick up where we left off in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 to verse 33. In 1837, an epidemic broke out among the traders on the boat, the St. Peter's. While the boat was docked at Fort Clark uh, in North Dakota, a chief from the Mandan tribe stole a blanket from the deck of the ship. What he didn't know is that the person he stole the blanket from had smallpox. Officers tried to get the blanket back from him and tried to explain to him, you don't want that, let us give you a different one, but the chief refused. What happened was in about three days, the Mandans began to get sick. And things got worse and worse, and hundreds began to die. And there were many of them that were so sick, they chose suicide. When it was all said and done, only 30 out of 1,700 Mandans actually lived. All of that happened as the result of one man's bad decision. It reminds me that our decisions have an effect on others. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 12 and uh, the story of King Jeroboam. If you were not here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go online and get part one of Acceptable Worship. I want to pick up in the story, but I want to reread for you verse 25 through verse 33 of chapter 12 to set the scene for what is going on. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam, who's now the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, he built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. He went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel. He got advice from people around him, and this is the plan they came up with. They made two calves of gold. He said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one of those calves in Bethel, the other he put in Dan up to the north. Then this thing became a sin for the people. They went as far as Dan to be before one, before one of those calves. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests 
from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. He placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Would you ask the Holy Spirit of God to open your heart and open your mind to receive the word today? God, help us now, Spirit of God. Help us to stay focused and to give you our full attention. We are worshipers. We're here right now in this moment in worship, devotion. We want to be true worshipers. So speak to us in these moments from this passage. Help me, I pray. Clear my mind, fill my heart, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Help me to recall the things that I've studied and help me to deliver this message, this section of your holy, inspired, infallible word in a way that would be pleasing to you. Save the sinner that's nearest eternity lost. Revive your church. For your glory we pray this in Christ's name. God's people said, Amen. Last Sunday, if you weren't here, we started with just a basic definition of what worship is. I extracted it from Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, where he said that worship is the God-centered focus and response of the soul. It is being preoccupied with God. A.W. Tozer said that worship is the normal employment of moral beings. In other words, worship is who we are. Worship is what we do. Christ's followers, true Christians, true believers, desire to offer acceptable worship to God. In our study in Hebrews in chapter 12, a few months ago, we came across a very important a couple of verses about worship in chapter 12 and verse 28. The writer there says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's that word acceptable. I'm going to show it to you again in Romans chapter 12, but I want you to think about uh, this uh, sermon title, Acceptable Worship. 
There is worship and there is acceptable worship. We are all worshipers. The answer or the question that needs to be answered is this. What or who are we worshiping? Not all forms of worship are acceptable and pleasing to a holy and a righteous God. That word acceptable there means uh, what God likes or what pleases Him, what is acceptable to Him. And what we see in the nation of Israel at this time is worship that is not acceptable to God. Now, I remind you that God is in control. Uh, He's not lost control. He's not wringing His hands in this moment. As uh, King Rehoboam, uh, last Sunday we looked at how uh, he had three days to make a decision. Am I going to listen to the people or am I going to bear down on them? And of course, he bore down on them and uh, it ended, uh, it set into motion the separation of the two kingdoms. And while we look at the silliness, Ralph Del Davis says the stupidity of man in him not listening to the advice that he got, we see in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse number 15 that as the king paid no attention to the people, that these events were clearly in the will of God. As we see the decisions of man, we need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God because what happens here actually fulfills the promise that God made to Jeroboam. So now Jeroboam is in charge in the north. We see that the people uh, crown him or make him the king. And he immediately in his leadership, both politically and spiritually, he fails to follow God's divine design. God divine, God's divine design for worship is not man-made, it is God-centered. And so last week we saw that Jeroboam got things out of order. He divided up God's people by sending them to an alternate location for worship. We now have two nations. We have two kings. We have two capitals, two governments, and we have two religions. Jeroboam violated God's law of image worship. He invoked Canaanite Baalism. He attempted to blend in with the culture around him by creating these two golden calves. I put a couple pictures in the sermon today as we have visited this spot, and I've actually uh, taught this passage standing here at the altar uh, that has been uncovered archaeologically. Uh, This is the actual altar that uh, Jeroboam built there. The metal frame there is just there to uh, give you a picture of what it looked like, but these stones are the actual stones from the area of Dan where Jeroboam set up a golden calf and he brought confusion to the people. It was misleading to the people. He also set the altar up in Bethel, just like this one. Uh, Genesis chapter 12 and verse number 8, the first altar to God was set up in Bethel, and now we have a golden calf. He also made sanctuaries on the high places. Remember, when you read about high places in the Scripture, it is not a good thing. It's not a reverent thing. It's a place of Canaanite worship, often the sacrifice of human beings. There's a picture there on the screen with the inscription of Scripture from 1 Kings here at the actual high place that has been uncovered 
in this area of Dan. These are real places. These are real events. Jeroboam set up sanctuaries on high places. He diverted the people of God from the presence of God. It was God Almighty who instituted the temple and the worship that was done there, the Holy of Holies, and how uh, the temple would even be built. But Jeroboam devises a plan in his own heart and his own mind to divert the people of God from the presence of God. We saw last week that uh, he called unqualified priests. If you're taking notes, write down Exodus chapter 40, Leviticus chapter 19. It's God Almighty that said, you get Aaron, you bring his son, and you pour the oil over their heads. I am ordaining them, I am commissioning them to be the priest of my people for, for all generations moving forward. But here Jeroboam comes up with his own plan of, of, of diversity, of reaching out to the 10 tribes that are under his watch. And he says, you know what? I think I'm going to call my own uh, spiritual leaders. I'm going to call my own priests. And so we'll just pick a couple. We find out reading a little bit later, a couple chapters later, that some of the people begin to come up and volunteer. Hey, I think I'll be a priest. And so Jeroboam just said, hey, yeah, come on. You, you, you take this role, completely ignoring God's divine design for qualifications of spiritual leadership. I just read for you that Jeroboam reorganized. He reorganized the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was to be done on the 15th day of the seventh month. They were supposed to journey to Jerusalem for this feast. But Jeroboam, now in charge, says, no, we're not going to do that. We'll have our own feast here in the 15th day of the eighth month. And what we learned from Jeroboam last Sunday was that Jeroboam did not follow God's divine design. Now, you might ask the question today, what is that divine design for the New Testament church? I think it's a valid question that needs to be answered. And while the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is very detailed and very specific, what we find in the New Testament is a more general application to God's divine design. We see in the New Testament that when God's people gather in a setting like this for corporate worship, we must have the Word of God. This is not a time for a TED Talk. This is not a time for a political rally. This is not the time for men's opinions. This is a time to hear the holy, divine, inspired Word of God. It is a time to pray. It's a time when God's people corporately pray together. It's also a time of singing. It's what you did just a minute ago. God's people have always been a singing people. It's a time for giving, as we did just a minute ago. Uh, in the Old Testament, you see the measurements that were used for the giving, and, and God's people are called in the New Testament to come and to grace give, to give generously and with joy. It's a time for fellowship. Hear me, church. Sunday is not a time to just make your conscience feel good by showing up and dining and dashing. Y'all know what that means, right? My daddy used to say, eat and run. It's not a time for that. It's a time to be a part of the body. Koinonia, fellowship. It's God's divine design. So therefore, it's our responsibility to plug ourselves into 
God's design for worship. Acceptable worship follows God's design. Let me keep moving today by saying, secondly, that true worship, acceptable worship to God, expects sacrifice. We expect sacrifice. When I think of the word acceptable, when I think of the word sacrifice, I think of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, and he says, I'm making an appeal to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That sacrifice is to be holy and, what's the next word? What's the next word? Holy and acceptable to God. Hear me today. The best I can tell in this moment in real time, geographically, where you and I are today, God is not asking us right now to die for Him. That may be in the forecast. That may be something we face. We know that our brothers and sisters around the world are facing that right now in real time. So I would challenge you this morning that in this moment, God is not asking you to die for Him. He's asking you to live for Him to live a life of sacrifice that is peculiar, that is different, that is set apart. It's holy. That is the life that is acceptable to God. And here's the deal, gang. This is your spiritual worship. How do we worship Him? Verse number two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is, say it with me, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Acceptable. So many times when it comes to public worship gatherings like this, people get all caught up into what I like. This is what I like when we really need to turn that upside down and be more concerned about what God likes. We have an audience of one today. We're not here to worship a pastor. We're not here to worship a denomination. We're not here to worship worship. We are here to worship a holy and a righteous God. And Jeroboam is leading the people away from that which is acceptable to God. Look in verse number 28 of chapter 12, what he says. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two calves. Okay? First of all, he had some bad counselors. Can I get an amen right there? You ought to listen to godly advice. You ought to listen to people that are monotheistic. I'm talking about right now in real time. Listen to people around you that acknowledge the Creator that acknowledge His Word, that acknowledge His ways. So so Jeroboam gets some bad advice, and this is what he says to the people. Look at this. It is too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, isn't it interesting that they didn't learn anything from that in 
Exodus chapter 32. The same exact thing. Look, these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. Look at these two calves. They rescued you. You and I know how silly that is. But I want you to notice how Jeroboam sells his new plan of worship. He sells it on the basis of convenience. Convenience. Hey, look now. You know, it's it's a long way down there to Jerusalem. I mean, think of all the trouble you've got to go through. Think of think of, you know, having to take the kids that far and think about the challenge of water and and food and so forth. And you've been doing, you've made that journey so many times. Let me let me make this thing more convenient for you. I think you all know that we live in a world today that really is focused on convenience. Convenience. And some of it's great, I'll be honest with you. I mean, during COVID, we had groceries sitting on our doormat, right? Somebody delivered it to our house. I, I went to Publix just two or three days ago, and, and I was coming back to my car, and this uh, sweet, kind uh, Publix worker, she walked up to a car, are you, are you Mr. Miss Jones? And they just rolled the window down, yeah, you know, that's us. And, and they, they hit a button, and the back of the, the uh, SUV popped up, and she put their groceries in there for them. I mean, think about it. You sit in your living room with your phone and do your grocery shopping. Wow, isn't that amazing? I mean, you go on your phone a few weeks ago. I bought some tickets to something, and I did it online. And I actually remember the days where you had to, like, stand in line to get a ticket to something. But I bought them on my phone. And guess what? I paid $15 per ticket, and then when I went to check out, I noticed this line. You know what it said? You know where I'm going. $7.50 convenience fee, right? So, so there's some plus and minuses to convenience. Let me ask you something. Do you think that spirit permeates the Christian community and the people of God? I mean, the way I see it as a, as a pastor and spiritual leader, some of it's good, it's not all bad, but we... We do our best to make things as convenient as possible. And sometimes that spirit of convenience come out in us, right? I, I, I want church at a certain time. I want my class at a certain time. I want because it's convenient for me. Not, not all of that's bad. Just stay with me for just a minute. And we kind of can set up our life based off of, uh, of convenience. On the other hand, we have a culture today where unfortunately... Church attendance is creeping more and more toward once a month. And church just becomes a thing that you participate in if it's convenient. If it's convenient for us, we'll go. If it's not convenient, we won't go. I love what Charles Ryrie said. He said, to neglect the Lord's day is to slight Him, to blunt the testimony of the resurrection and to miss the benefits of the ministry and protection of corporate worship. We have to be careful. Again, not all convenience is bad, but stay with me. We have to be really careful in our lifestyle of worship that we do not get drawn into the culture of convenience and forget that what we're really called to is a life of sacrifice. 
that when we come to Christ, we give ourselves wholly and totally to Him. Here's my life, Lord. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, if anyone will offer acceptable worship to me, that which is pleasing to me, he will take up his cross, he will deny himself, and he will follow me. So Christian, let me ask you today, are you at a place in your life where you are surrendered to Christ and you're willing to do whatever it is that he wants you to do? When we were in New Orleans a couple weeks ago, you've heard me mention the sending celebration that we do every time. And this year there were 79 missionaries that we sent. I put this picture up here for you to get a kind of an idea of how that goes. The reason that couple is standing behind that screen is that we, many of them would only see a silhouette of them in the audience, the light shining from the back. And the reason for that is that their names and their faces and so forth are, are not being placed online because of places that they're going around the world. Many families have sold everything. There, was, there were grandparents who said, we're going to be leaving our six grandchildren and our four children and going back to the Far East. There were other families that were there that, you know, they had maybe three or four children and they sold their home and sold their cars, sold everything they had. And they're getting on an airplane to go to places around the world to tell people the good news of the grace of the Lord Jesus. We prayed over them. We prayed over them, and then when they finished praying, there were about 19,000 people in the room. And we all began to sing together. They had a missionary choir on the stage. They had some missionaries that uh, you've seen these choirs they make with Zoom where there's like 15 people on the screen. They're all singing together. Some of you have been around the church for a long time have heard this old hymn. We all begin to sing. Wherever He leads, I'll go. Wherever He leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever He leads, I'll go. Take up Thy cross and follow me. I heard the Master say, I gave my life a ransom for Thee. Surrender your all today. Sing that chorus with me if you know it. It's real simple. Wherever He leads, I'll go wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so wherever he leads, I'll go.
I was reminded that day of what worship really is. It's not just singing and saying those words. Hear me. It's not just showing up on Sunday and saying words on the screen. That doesn't make you a worshiper. What makes you a worshiper is to say, God, here's my life. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to surrender. God, I'm, I'm not looking. I'm not looking for just convenience and comfort. And I'll be honest with you in that moment, I checked my own heart to make sure I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to do. Because if you offer acceptable worship, if you're a living sacrifice, you've got to expect sacrifice. Not a life of ease and a life of comfort. Let me keep moving. Acceptable worship not only expects sacrifice, but but acceptable worship, when you offer acceptable worship, you, you don't make it about you. You don't make it about you. We've made worship into this thing today, and please, please hear me from my heart. I don't have an agenda except to preach the text and to and to put what God has placed on my heart. But we've made church life today so much about consumerism. It's just it's all about us, and that fits somewhat into the convenience part of it as well. When we make worship about us instead of making worship about God. What did Jeroboam do? Think again about the influence of one man, one king, one spiritual leader of a nation. It says that he said in his heart, again, he had a conversation with himself that got him in trouble. I said in my heart, the people are going to go away from me. The people's hearts are going to turn back to Rehoboam. And in his insecurity, He led a whole group of people away from true biblical worship. I want to say again, please hear me today, that the decisions we make, it affects not only ourselves, but it affects people around us. So if we live in this individualistic, expressive society where it's all about me, it's all about my needs, it's all about my feels, it's all about what I want, and we're not truly surrendered to God, we are affecting people around us. What Jeroboam does is he moves away from orthodoxy. He moves away from God's design, and he makes it about himself. Now on the surface, it appears that he's interested and he really cares to make sure that the people worship. But you and I know that his methods and his methods were, or his motives and his methods were out of line. They were self-centered and it not only affected him, but it affected an entire generation. I have no reason to stand here today and be critical of the past because I know that as you look at worship and you look at God's people, it looks very different in different places geographically around the world. And I think we have to be careful about just making these sweeping statements about everybody and and how everything's been done. It's, 
It's like we can develop a pride of, man, we're doing it right now, and they've been getting it wrong. But I still have to wonder today, what kind of fruit are we reaping? What kind of fruit is there in the New Testament church or the manner in which we worship today? What have we learned from the past, both good and bad, that affects the way we live the Christian life and even the way we have corporate gatherings today. Are y'all tracking with me? You've heard me mention the book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. Our staff a couple of weeks ago, Trevin Wax, was uh, here on Perdido Key, and he reached out. We had breakfast with him, and he wrote the book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy. And he has a particular section in there that jumped out at me, and as I began to do a little research uh, over the last two or three weeks, I, I found this in, in several different places, but he puts in that book that, that, that we have lost the thrill of orthodox Christianity. And he says, Christians who focus solely on just doing good or li- living the faith, I'm going to be a do-gooder, as opposed to an emphasis on the truths they confess. Stay with me. He said they rarely pass on their faith effectively. So if you're just the kind of Christian that says, well, you know, I'm just going to do good. I'm, I'm not going to be sold out. I'm not going to live a life of sacrifice. I'm going to be a Christian, but I'm just going to do good and mind my own business. You know, sometimes Christians say things like, well, you know, my faith is private. I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. He's saying that if you choose to live your days like that, then you rarely pass on your faith effectively. So here's what happens. The first generation knows what to do and why to do it. So I want you to think about the nation of Israel, the adults, the men and the women who have children who are in this moment They knew they were supposed to go to Jerusalem. They knew how they were supposed to worship. They knew why they were going to Jerusalem to worship, because they had a Creator, God Almighty, who had chosen them. They had a special covenantal relationship with them, and He had been very clear, this is how I want it done. They knew what to do, and they knew why. The second generation keeps the what, but loses the why. So now we have worship going on, this event of worship, where God's people are worshiping golden calves. They don't understand the why. Why are we doing this? I want you to make application in your mind to right now, today, in real time. And then this is what happens in the third generation. The third generation loses both the what and the why. The what and the why. Do we understand today the what and the why? Do we? Do we really really know what the what is? Do we really know what worship really is? Worship is not politics. 
Worship is not feelings and opinions. Worship is a holy and a righteous God that created us, who is a God of order. And He wants His children to be surrendered to Him. It's, it's, all, it's all about Jesus. It's not all about us. I'm so burdened at times when I hear people The church of Jesus Christ is not perfect. No denomination is perfect. No preacher is perfect. No pastor is perfect. No local church is perfect. But I hear people today who want to just bash the bride, bash the church. Bash the church. And blame the church. Because their young adults are off track and off course and not in the church, not surrender to Christ. I just think it's time for all of us to do personal inventory about our hearts. What are are our hearts truly set on? Are our hearts set on God? Do those who live under our roof know the what and the why of who we are and why we do what we do? How many of you know the devil loves fake hypocrisy. (laughs) Oh, the devil loves it. We've kind of created a subculture, I believe, especially here in the South, where, you know, going to church is just something that you do. I've passed out copies of the book, The Unsaved Christian, around here several times. If you've never read that book, look it up and read it, all right? The Unsaved Christian. It just talks about how in the South we developed this subculture And we think about church as being one-seventh of our life. It's something we put in an hour. We put in an hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half a week, and we go to an event called worship, and then the rest of the time we're just kind of living in the world. When you and I know that true worship is not an event that you show up for, it's something, it's a life that you live and something that you do and who you are seven days a week. You're going to be a worshiper tomorrow. Hear me. You're going to be a worshiper tomorrow when you get up to go to work. You're going to be a worshiper when you go out into the community. It's who we are. We're worshipers. And here's what I really believe. If we all, including me, if we all were true worshipers of Jesus Christ, the corporate gathering would be so overwhelming. Years ago, David Platt wrote a book called Radical. And everybody was reading that book about radical. And here's what he was basically saying. There are sometimes in the church we say, well, I tell you what, I really admire that person. You know, they're sold out to Jesus. They go on mission trips, and man, they really love the Lord. They're doing the work. I really admire them. We think that people who are genuinely sold out to Christ are an anomaly instead of the normal. The normal Christian life is supernatural. Watchman Nee, when I was in the eighth grade, my Bible teacher in Christian school Bible class handed me the book, The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee. Eighth grade, that was a long time ago. She made me read that book. You know what I found in that book? Watchman Nee said, 
If Christians would live the normal Christian life, it would be so supernatural. But maybe we made worship about us. We developed our substitutes. Just hear me, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of land the plane here. And I, I want to challenge us as I close to fight against faulty substitutes. Fight against it. What if, what if, what if Jeroboam would have called together some counselors and the counselors would have said, no, no, we, we don't get to draw up the plan. What are you doing? They came up with a faulty substitute. And hear me, faulty substitutes are not real. The devil loves to give us a mirage of what worship and church is really like. And we have so much today that's coming against the church. Compromise, compromise, liberalism, pragmatism. The end justifies the means. Instead of just sticking with God-ordained biblical worship, as I read through the Old Testament, I see that God responds. God responds to what He sees in His church. We even find that in the book of Revelation, right? There's seven letters there that are written to seven churches. Some of those letters contain compliments. You know, they're positive things about doctrinal fidelity and other things. But, but most of those letters are letters to kind of bring some shock into the church and, and to kind of wake everybody up. And here's what I know based off of the Scriptures. God Almighty, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of the podcast you listen to says, somebody say amen right there. God Almighty is not looking down, and He's just happy that y'all are doing something for Him. It's not what I find in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you some pretty strong language. About a hundred years after Jeroboam in Israel, this is what God has to say about what's going on under the banner of worship. Look at this. This is found in Amos chapter 5 and verse 21. God says, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Now stay right there on that verse for just a minute. Back up a verse, thank you. I want you to realize what he's saying. You know what solemn assemblies were? They were when the people gathered for the specific purpose of weeping and repenting and, and, and being demonstratively broken over their disobedience. I, I mean, they had set aside a time where, hey, we do our normal worship routines, but, but this is a special time. This is a time when we're going to get really serious, we're going to get solemn, we're going to assemble together, God says, I have no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings, grain offerings, here's that word again, here it is, I will not 
I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Notice verse 23. Man, we, we have had, for the last three or four decades, so many churches have had worship wars over what songs are we going to sing. Well, I like this, and I like that. Here's God speaking into the worship service. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Now get this, God Almighty is plugging up His ears because what's going on under the banner of worship he hates. God is saying, shut down the music. Shut it down. Put your instruments up. Stop your fake crying and your fake repentance. I don't want to hear it. Verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here's what God is saying. You've got all this activity and practice and pomp and circumstance going on, but there's two things you're missing. Number one, you're missing justice. And that word means good decisions. Order. Order. Rule. God's rule, not man's rule. You're missing righteousness, which is unity and honesty and being right with God. True worship comes from a heart that says, I want to be right with God. If your heart's not right with God, then don't come in here and mumble the words off the screen and your heart be a million miles away. Set your heart on God. Seek justice. Seek righteousness. That which is right. That which is holy. I'll close with this. I had the opportunity on Thursday to speak to the kids at camp. And so here's what we did. I told them, I said, I want to talk for just a few minutes. I want to share with you what every pastor wants a teenager to know. What every pastor wants a teenager to know. And then we're going to turn around and spend the last half of the session. I want you to tell me what a teenager wants a pastor to know. And we had a really good time together. But I want to just mention a couple things that I shared with them about who they are at this stage in their life that if they have professed Christ as Lord and Savior, been baptized, they know Christ. They are worshipers. And as a church, we, we care about their faith. We want them to really know Jesus. And I told them that you are not the future of the church. You're the church right now. Church, hear me. Can I say that again? These kids around here are not the future of the church. They're the church right now. They're a part of the body. That's why Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, remember now, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. See, we don't just kind of babysit along and then hope you know, that a kid gets in their 20s and they get it. What we're finding is kids get in their 20s and they run like a scalded dog. 
away from the church. We want them to know you're a part of the church right now. And I share with them, look, I want you to grow through the preaching of the Word of God from the pulpit. We don't want you to be bored. We want you to know that you're kingdom workers right now. You're kingdom workers. Not just in the future, but now. And I finished up with this. I said, in a spirit of transparency, I want you all to know that we have a burden and a concern over whether or not you're getting it. We live in that tension. The same tension that every parent ought to live with. With our kids, as we pray over our kids and disciple our kids, we ought to be praying over them that they'll get it. They'll get it. They'll get it. That they will not grow up around a bunch of religious activity and not know what acceptable worship is. Because you can close your eyes and raise your hands with the best of them and your heart be as cruddy as all get out. God's not looking at your singing ability. God's looking at your heart. Your heart. You know what? I'm sad to say, in chapter 13, God sends a prophet to get Jeroboam's attention. But it doesn't work. At the end of chapter 13, it says that after the prophet of God had come to Bethel, Jeroboam is standing beside the altar in Bethel, and he's offering incense on the altar. The man of God shows up. He says, Jeroboam, you've worshipped your own way. You've developed your own system. You made two golden calves. And, and God sent me here to tell you he's fixing to blow this place up. We don't know if it was an earthquake or what, but the Scripture says the altar just went into pieces. Jeroboam responds in his pride and his arrogance. Remember, remember, remember. Remember when Jeroboam was walking down the road and Ahijah came to him and said, Jeroboam, God's got a, a, a plan for you. If you'll just obey him and follow him, man, he's going to bless you and give you a kingdom. Now here's Jeroboam offering incense on a high place. And his response to the prophet of God is, arrest him. And when he reaches out his hand, toward the prophet of God, his hand begins to wither and he could not put his hand down to his side. So he's stuck in the moment. And he realizes, okay, God's got my attention now. And he looks at the prophet and he goes, please, please ask God to help me heal my hand. And, and the prophet of God prays. He receives favor. His hand is restored. Jeroboam says, hey, come home with me. I want to bless you. You can refresh yourself. You can rest at my house. And the prophet of God says, I'm not going to your house. But I'm going to tell you right now, you could offer me half of your kingdom, half of your house, and half of your stuff, and I'm not taking it. As a matter of fact, God told me, don't even drink water at your house. Go a different way home. Get out of here. And you know what Jeroboam did? He had another encounter in that moment with God. You know what he did? The Scripture says in chapter 13, in verse 33, even after this, Jeroboam did not repent of his evil way, but again he made priests 
for the high places from the ranks of the people. How many of you believe God has a divine design for his leaders? That goes for pastors and priests. It's God's design. We better follow his design. He ordained whoever so desired it, and they became priests of the high places. This was the sin that caused the house of Jeroboam to be cut off and obliterated from the face of the earth. That's a sad ending, isn't it? Jeroboam reigned 22 years. He had a call of God on his life, but he ended up, he died and he was buried with his fathers. And he led the people of God away from acceptable worship. There's a message in there for all the dads in the room. God's divine design, you are the spiritual leader of your house. That's God's design. There's a message in there for pastors who run around and try to find the newest, coolest, pragmatic way to get people in the church. Instead of doing it God's way, there's a message in there for moms who have the wonderful blessing of loving and shepherding your children and leading other ladies to know Christ in a deeper and a fuller way. It's about surrender. It's about what is acceptable to Him. May we please Him. May we please Him. May this church be a church that God looks down and says, that's acceptable. That's acceptable worship. Would you stand with me?